Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, it's 1970, everybody, and we're going down, down, down beneath the planet of the apes. The year, 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut, space-wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. They are marked for target practice. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor, trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominate the Earth, a planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Planet of the Apes, Andy. We're going underneath it. We uh, are going under. There are still apes. There are still apes, or very clearly people in ape suits. <laughs> ape masks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The budget allowed for them to keep the ones that they had had from last time and Which make looked a few great. additional and make a few additional new ones. <laughs> uh you know, select few, like yeah. General Ursus, yeah. you know. But then, yes, this one is where the budget cutbacks really start to show <laughs> because <laughs> it's particularly noticeable in the orangutans and the and the chimps when uh, Ursus is having his little uh, powwow and he's kind of riot, riling the troops up, right? Right, right. And you keep cutting to the different groups as they're all kind of separated. And man, there are some, especially when you see, oh, well, there's Vera and Cornelius sitting in a group. Of <laughs> sitting right next to a bunch of dead plastic costumes. faces. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they hang around? Why do they consort with such vacant, expressionless <laughs> alien monkeys? <laughs> I expected so much oh. more from them. Oh, so funny. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's funny. This is a movie that I have so many problems with, but... This is a movie that it it just from my childhood, um, I ended up seeing quite a number of times on TV. And so as cheesy as it is, this is one of I, I guess you'd say I guess you could call it a guilty pleasure, but I think it still has a lot of love. Um, it's so I don't know if it's completely guilty, but it certainly is a film that is a of a lower production quality and uh, you know you can you can really see the the b movie elements really kind of shining through in this one and some of the 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 poor writing and some of the decisions they had to make with low budget and everything but i can't help but still really enjoy it <laughs> really really <laughs> yes, yeah, here's, really here's my problem and this is what i would like you to talk to me about because i i feel like uh, if anybody I know is going to be able to see through uh, the nonsense of this movie, it's going to be you, Andy. It's going to be you. What is this movie trying to say? The last movie, there is so much going on, uh, you know, with regard to statements about culture and religion and science and uh, intellectualism, uh, all wrapped up in this, what otherwise could be a, a nonsense story about, you know, the apes. This movie seems to be so much about the nonsense story of the apes retelling the action of the first movie, right? Astronaut has to learn all the same lessons about, oh my God, it's a city of apes. We're learning all that stuff. But 
but it seems like it's empty of of resonant statement. It isn't. It is otherwise an empty shell of a movie compared to the first one. So tell me what you get out of this movie, uh, if, if anything, uh, that that makes it stand, uh, you know, next to the first. I don't think that it, that's a, a fair statement. I think there is more going on with this film than that. I just think it may not be um, as strongly constructed. I think this film, it, it is still doing stuff, reflecting the times with the protests. You've got the, the chimps all protesting kind of this, this idea of war um, and you know, very much reflected of the times of the, the late 60s here in the U.S., um, and not to mention uh, Paul Dane, who they ended up bringing on board to to write it, was very much somebody who had kind of been vocal with kind of the uh, uh, anti-nuclear arms race and just the, the devastation that could come from that. And I, I think largely he was brought on very specifically because of that. And you, I, I find that you really see that as we build into the ending and this idea that, uh, the, this nuclear might, um, is this devastation. And, you know, as, as people, we kind of, you know, worship this idea of having these devices that technically can destroy the world, but it's some weird, you know, thing that we have so that we can, you know, beat everyone else. And in this particular case, I mean, literally, you have these underground mutants kind of worshiping this bomb. And in the end, uh, it gets set off and does destroy the planet. So I, I yeah, think you that, know, that's fair. That, that's fair. I think the end, particularly the literally worshiping the weapons of of doom. Yeah, <laughs> is, that's, right. that is you're right. That's a clear statement uh, that the movie's trying to make. I hate the telepathic stuff. I think that's nonsense. Oh. I do too. It's and it's it's one of those things that really just serves no purpose because yeah. um, even when they start just well, one they say, well, we always speak when we're praying um, and and worshiping our God, and we do see that. But then they speak to Brent saying, oh, well, well, we can speak, we just don't like to, but it's such a lower form of communication. Um, but then they still do it while they're by themselves. Yeah, <laughs> like right. okay, it's. It's bad writing when it comes to that. You know, it's it ends up not working because uh, you've just told us that these people look down on it, but here they are doing it. So, I mean, it starts exactly where we left off in the first movie. So, so much in the first movie that uh, Roddy McDowell's actually in it for, for a brief, <laughs> brief uh, bit, uh, the archive footage from uh, Planet of the Apes. And it picks up from there. Taylor and uh, his mute uh lover our horseback they then they continue their exploration beyond the uh, lady liberty and it turns out ansa has sent a following spacecraft yes what do we think of that <laughs> well if you couldn't buy into taylor's ship uh turning around and ending up on earth in the first film you're really gonna have problems <laughs> the fact that that brent's ship does exactly the same thing it's right. it's pretty ridiculous but again it's one of those things it's just the conceit of the story and and for me it's just stuff i buy into because i know that that's just what the story needs and so i, I don't end up having a problem with it but yeah i can see why people might really <laughs> 
like you might have real issues with the fact that like it works you. out. <laughs> well, you you were the one who had the problem with it in the first film. I did. I had a problem yeah. with it. And predictably, Andy, I have a problem with it here. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, I, you know, you make another point that, you know, how how is it that these astronauts, <laughs> the, the ship's captain, is surprised that his family's dead? <laughs> Oh, dear, yes. <laughs> ANSA, the uh, American Space Agency, whatever it is, uh, is really terrible at conditioning their astronauts for long-term space exploration. I, know. I, I think they're, like, tricked with the donuts <laughs> and, Something. and put on the spacecraft before they know what they're getting into. It's kind of yeah. a multi-level marketing thing. <laughs> 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 yeah, Taylor in the first film seemed to have a good idea, but but even some of the astronauts in the first film seemed a little surprised you yeah. know, when they when the realization hit them. But man, this this captain here really just is like what? Yeah, what? <laughs> How is this possible? <laughs> Brent is, uh, as I like to call him, Heston too. Uh, right. It's just put a beard on Charlton Heston and tell him to act exactly like Heston did in the first one, and you have this movie. Yeah, James Franciscus, uh, I believe he was kind of more of a, a TV actor and uh, brought on to to lead the charge here. I think Burt Reynolds was uh, considered to play the role, um, but uh, James Franciscus ended up getting it. And, you know, I mean, he had done some films before this. I, I think a lot of stuff was TV, but like right before this, he had done like The Valley of Guanji. So he was already in kind of some of those low budget uh, sci-fi types of films. Um, and you know, I don't know. I just feel he is really just kind of a, a, a B version of Heston. <laughs> so to that end, I'm like, eh, you know, he's never been my favorite. Um, and you know, he, for me, he is always one of the, the weakest elements of this film. Also, because Heston is a B version of Heston in the first movie. I'm not sure how we got away with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, they do do some interesting things in here. And, uh, you know, the, some of the stuff we liked the most about the f the first movie, how they do the the crash landing, some of the camera tricks, uh, they, they follow a little bit of that motif in this movie. And uh, it starts with, nova's flashbacks right as she runs into brent and and uh, he sees the dog tags uh, and she starts to remember and interestingly they give nova in in that regard they give her something to stand for more than just as a foil uh, in a fur bikini i really like the way that those flashbacks come across the last time we see her uh, is with Taylor as they're riding uh, out past the Statue of Liberty and out into the Forbidden Zone. And, and then when she shows up, she's by herself. And so it immediately is an interesting way to kind of uh, give the audience some questions. But yeah, then the way that they kind of play with that is he's, as, as, as Brent is asking her about the dog tags, and you're kind of getting those flashes of memory of what happened with her. I really found really compelling because it's it's an interesting way to do the flashbacks and kind of let us know what happened with Taylor um, in the first place. But also, it's a really unique way to show that this is this primitive woman who might be having slight moments of kind of uh, development, like mental development, uh, you know, and I, I find that really compelling because we do see her continuing 
um, this development over the course of the film. Um, not a ton, but it, I, I think it's really interesting where we see this slight change in her um, and it's almost like a, a hint of evolution happening. I really like that. Yeah, I, I actually do too. And it makes, it, you know, it makes her a useful character, right? We didn't get that so much in the first movie and here they, they you know, level up Nova. Yeah. And, and I really, I, I enjoyed watching that happen. Um, the, we, we have a new uh, principal uh, gorilla and yes. as as the the leader of the uh, gorillas is General Ursus, uh, and we meet him right sort of. I think we meet him first during the big rally scene, right? Right. Uh, right. But then we then we go all in and on Ursus when he's in a he's like we go to the sauna. Ursus <laughs> 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 and Zeus, and uh, that's a that's a tough scene to watch. For me, it feels like SNL. <laughs> it is a strange, strange scene. It's very um, strange. I, it, don't it's, even, it, I couldn't even tell you what they cover in that sequence. I know it's some sort of a, you know, golf club kind of a sequence, but it's the suits. And and Ursus is one of the principal characters. Like, you'd think that's one that even with the low budget, we would get a mask that works. But most of the time, his mouth doesn't work. And uh, I I find it really ridiculous I, I you know he's one i don't have problems with and maybe it's because i just i love the the kind of the helmet that he has that gi- gigantic yeah helmet that yeah. Uh, you know i i think is such a great look for him and i do think that's something um tim burton brought forward in his uh version is that fantastic kind of helmet look for his he is gorillas. he's much better in still photography that's true yeah and, and i don't have as much problem with the mouth i i think that it's okay um, um, I, I find him a compelling character. I just, uh, again, I, I wish that there was, um, better writing involving all of this because I, I, in the first film, we really have a sense that there's nothing that the apes have found other than maybe this, this cave that Dr. Zayas is kind of keeping secret and blows up that hints that there are people. And then all of a sudden now at the start of this film, they all of a sudden know that there's other people out there or they, they, they have this, this sense cause they've been sending troops out. And I feel like this is probably budgetary cuts. Um, it, it could also just be, uh, you know, writing of the time and IE not as strong that, you know, he talks about these troops that have gone out and have not come back except for one, like 12 troops went out. Only one came back. Um, into the forbidden zone, trying to figure out what's going on. And that's something that I feel like they should have shown. We should have seen that so that Mm -hmm. we could have gotten a sense of that element of the story. It would have made for a stronger uh, discovery. And I think it would have been easier to buy into everything that uh, Ursus is talking about. Yeah, especially to lead up to him leading the charge across the Forbidden Zone, right? It feels like we haven't established the stakes or the foreboding doom or the the intense need to figure out what's on the other side of it in spite of all these, you know, simian losses. Uh, it, it's just not weighty enough when they decide to make this march and put Ursus and, and you know, um, at the head of it. I, I just didn't didn't see it. Yeah. It's frustrating. Plus, there are all sorts of problems as they, you know, as they we start talking about the Forbidden Zone, there are all sorts of problems with the geography, right? I mean, it's it's hard to get a sense of place. 
Yeah, that's something I, I struggled with more on this viewing as I was really paying attention to how things are discovered as far as the locations. Because Brent, he runs, when he and, and Nova escape the ape city on horseback, they end up hiding from the apes and they find this cave that leads them underground um, and takes them basically to where the mutants live um, under through the kind of the remnants of New York that's uh, mm-hmm. kind of under the ground. Um, yet later in the film, when the apes are going to war, they have to march a long way. They cut through the forbidden zone. They have all sorts of visions thrown at them before they finally come to this very same hole, uh, to get into the exact same place. Um, it makes no sense geography wise. And it's, (laughs) it's a real frustration because it's so illogical. Can we just talk a little bit about the visions? So I'm assuming that the visions are from the mutant humans. Correct. Okay. Where were the mutant humans when we dabbled in the Forbidden Zone in the last movie, which, according to our timeline, was just a couple of days ago? Well, they theoretically were there, and they, I guess, would have been uh, around when uh, Taylor and his guys were crossing the Forbidden Zone, and you had kind of all that lightning and stuff, and they're like, what's going on? Okay, Um, so we're saying that that was um, was mutant humans? I, I would assume so, trying to keep them going away from them, uh, going in a different direction toward the ape city. Hmm. In the okay. world of retconning, yes. E- exactly. That's You're what right. it was. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very clear retcon. Uh, okay, interesting. I, I found that a, a little bit uh, jarring that because of the timeline, the sort of forced proximity to the first movie, uh, that, that that was the, generous. Uh, in the narrative like we were, we were really taking a little bit of advantage there but maybe you're right i i don't mind it i actually think that of the different elements that we find with the mutants i think that's actually a, a compelling one that they actually have developed this ability to make you see things mm-hmm. and to play mind games with you i love that about them and uh, much more so than the fact that they um, don't have to talk and they speak you know telepathically i think that's pretty silly um, this I think works well. Um, and I think it's interesting when they're making Brent and then later Brent and Taylor, uh, do things and trying to fight each other and kill each other and stuff. I find that really compelling. But again, this goes to bad writing when the apes arrive and they just start killing it. All of a sudden the mutants are completely useless yeah. and they're just getting killed left and right by the apes, which I think is ridiculous because you even have that one mutant who says, you know, we're a peaceful people. Um, we don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't they do that with the apes? Right. You know, I mean, that's what they're doing with Taylor and, uh, and Brent. Uh, why I granted it's, it's numbers. They do have that one line, though, I mean, that kind of throws that away. That's like, oh, they're so stupid, they can't even hold our projections in their head, right? Um, which, which which, feels like uh, we're going to hang a lantern on the fact that we don't know how to get out of this. Yeah, yeah, right. The The other thing that I that bugs me, I mean, to the point where you're talking about, and this is just a missed opportunity, that I think would have been a, a better play on these characters and their their potential powers, is that they can make you see what they want you to see. Uh, with their minds right and then they're wearing plastic masks <laughs> they went to a lot of work and makeup to make themselves look right when they they could just make you see that right i just felt like that was that uh, was uh, why, why didn't they uh why didn't they make you see them in 
looking all beautiful. I don't know. Well, and to that point, here's an idea. Instead of, you know, giving apes a vision where it's this horror scene of all these apes strung up and on fire, which, I mean, granted, it was a really interesting visual. Yeah. And that the apes, yeah, they were alive. Like they were yeah. screaming at the hanging upside down in upside down cross, uh, you know, uh, formation. Right. Right. Yeah, it was During it was pretty interesting. Down, yeah. Why do they instead don't don't they just make it look like a big wall and because then the apes aren't, you know, confronting it. Right. And if they just see it as, as a big wall, they're going, Well, we can't go this way. <laughs> and they turn around and go a different direction. <laughs> or that a seems cavern like a much or something way. that is yeah. completely impossible to scale. You're right. That's ridiculous. That's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Uh how'd you feel about apes on horses? Why are they training? Because they're they're saving certain humans, including, as we find out, Brent and Nova, to use uh, for uh, target practice. But when we see them actually doing some target practice around the camp, one of the things they're doing is they're putting humans on horseback, and then they're catching them with nets and stuff on horseback. Yet we have shown in the first film and through this film that humans are incapable of understanding how to go on a horseback because they're <laughs> primitive. We never have seen a human on horseback except when it comes to Taylor and Nova and then this film Brent and Nova. Yeah. So that's completely silly that they're even trying to catch humans on horseback. Real dumb. Um, they, they do a great job of making the apes look so much stupider in this film than they were <laughs> in the previous film. It's very frustrating. Uh, but the other thing is the stunt work in this. I, I feel really like we're going back to the days of Stagecoach when we when they were practically like they're tying the, the horse's feet down and practically killing the horses. Yeah. Here, you know, you, you got some awful stunts like with the one where they're coming at the, the primitive man on the horse and they throw the net over him and it it hits the horse and it like throws the horse like upside down right into the water. It just looked like a terrible way to treat an animal. So I don't know um, what the rules were at this point, but it's, uh, you know, it's frustrating to to watch stuff like this. And it's something that I know in film they still deal with. I mean, all the way up into things like Braveheart, they were still dealing with stuff. So, so who knows? I, I don't know what they're doing here, but it just looked terrible. All that is resolved in the sequel Rise of the Planet of the Horses. <laughs> uh, in which the uh, horses rise up against their simian overlord. I can't wait. Are those equisapiens? They're equisapiens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't uh, need that visual in my right? head again. <laughs> it hurts so much. You know, one thing I will say, I did feel that there were hints of uh, Dr. Strangelove throughout this with the, the doomsday bomb. And I, I couldn't help, but every time I was watching the scene when, when Charles Heston goes, it's a doomsday bomb. I just wanted to have somebody go, the bomb, Dimitri, the hydrogen, the hydrogen bomb. bomb. <laughs> well, the end is, uh, you know, it it's, uh, it's pretty dark. It's a 70s ending for sure, uh, this movie. You know, Heston blows up the bomb and destroys the mutants and the apes and uh, end of the world. He was excited about this. You know, he didn't want to come back for the sequel. He said, I did my part. I don't know what you would need me for in this one. And so he said no. And they worked on this script and they tried coming up with it, but they lost Roddy McDowell. They lost uh, Schaffner as the director who was focused on Patton at the time. 
Um, they lost their writers. And so Zanuck came to him and said, look, we need you to come back. Come on. Uh, we've done a lot for you uh, and your career. It would be, you know, great for you to come on board and help. And so he finally agreed and he said, look, I'll do it, but just let me be in the beginning and kill me off. And, and they said, okay. And then as they worked on the script, they said, look, it, it makes more sense for us to just to have a tiny bit of you in the beginning and then you're gone for the film, but then you'll come back at the end and you'll, uh, we'll kill you off in the ending. And he said, okay, that's fine. And so he ended up being a part of it. And I, I do think it's a strength to have Heston back for this one. And uh, what's funny is this was done at the same time that the studio was going, still dealing with the repercussions of all their failed films and just the huge box office losses they had taken on films like Star and Hello, Dolly and uh, Cleopatra and Dr. Doolittle. It was just a real struggle for them at the time. And uh, this was when um, the Zanuck father and son were kind of, you know, having issues and uh, Dick Zanuck ended up kind of getting canned or, or leaving uh, 20th Century Fox and forming his own company. And uh, one of the last things he did when he was leaving, he told the writers, he said, just blow the planet up, just <laughs> kill them all. And I guess Ted Post, uh, who's directing, really didn't like that idea, but um, he went along with it because that's what the studio wanted. And I will say, it does feel like kind of another iconic Planet of the Apes ending. Maybe not as much as the original, but I do feel it's it's an ending that, that sticks in your head, you know? Yeah, I guess it does. Uh, it it's, doesn't appear at, at first blush uh, maybe I'm overthinking it to be great fodder for a sequel. Uh, well, and and yet, <laughs> <laughs> and yet it does well enough where they're like, well, crap. Now, how are we going to make right. a third one? <laughs> right. What a fun uh, logical exercise that is. So it, there we go. I can't uh, wait to talk about that next week. <laughs> this it it is missing though that Rod Serling twist. You know, the first one is so rewarding because of that great Rod Serling twist. And Rod Serling, uh, you know, his his absence in the final result of this film is, I think, notable. Well, they had asked him to come on board as the writer initially. But uh, and I can't remember the direction the story uh, was that he wanted to take it. But it was not something that anybody was uh, at the studio was really interested in it just wasn't clicking they just didn't feel like he was bringing it and so so that is disappointing and even pierre boule was asked to to work on the sequel but his script um really i mean if you thought um this one lacked that rod serling ending that one really would have had no surprises at all it was just basically um taylor and uh and Nova having a son and raising his son and teaching the humans to kind of be a little smarter and fight. And then it's a war. It's like a big war film. Mm -hmm. um, and that would have been really, really lame. So at least this one has some surprise. You know, I, I think that that's, uh, I, I, I think that they were hoping there would be two big surprises in this film. One, the reveal that the mutants um, are actually, um, horribly disfigured under their faces, under their little Mission Impossible faces, and two, the fact that it ends with the planet basically being destroyed. And, you know, it's not as strong as the first film, and you're right, you do miss that a little bit. But I do think at least they've tried. At least they tried. And and they tried at the hands of Paul Dane. Do uh, you want to talk a little bit more about how he landed this thing? 
Well, I said a little bit before. I mean, he he was a screenwriter. He had um, adapted. But you didn't works. read any poetry for me. I didn't. And that's read what his I'm poetry. hoping. That's yes, what I'm right, hoping right. will land on. He had um, uh, ri- uh, he had adapted uh, like Goldfinger, the spy who came in from the cold. After this, he does Murder on the Orient Express. He's a he's a a, a writer who um, had some notoriety, and uh, I, I think that he was a great choice for this. Largely because he is, I mean, he's not Rod Serling, but he certainly had ideas and thoughts and had expressed his thoughts about nuclear war um, in uh, several books of poetry, one of which is called Quake, 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 A Leaden Treasury of English Verse, which uh, the art in it is, um, oh, what's that artist's name who does like the the Adams family? Edward Gorey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The like line art lithography yeah. something right yeah that really kind of creepy wonderful art that edward yeah. gory does um and it's this book of poetry and here's here's an example home they brought her warrior dead she could neither weep nor pray for that same bomb from which he bled had killed her 90 miles away Grim. very cheery cheery stuff yeah here's another one. O nuclear wind when wilt thou blow that the small rain down can rain Christ, that my love were in my arms, and I had my arms again. <laughs> Goodness, <laughs> yeah, it's it's all uh, here's another just I mean, it's ridiculous. They're all short and they're fun. I shot a missile into the air. It fell to earth. I know not where. Since when, for some odd cause or other, I've had no news about my brother. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so you yes. know what? Uh, I think you would be a great candidate to write our ape screenplay. Well, and I think his work really shines through when you hear the mutants singing their the their end. psalms yeah. to the bomb. You know, I mean, their their lines very much sound like his poetry. Um, I, was, I thought I wrote one of them down, but I can't find it. Oh, here. Glory be to the bomb and to the holy fallout as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end you know it's it's <laughs> it's very much the same sort of of tone and i think that was uh kind of that to a certain extent that dark strength that he ended up bringing to this so much so that he ends up really kind of on the franchise almost through to the end let's talk about the cast oh yes we, we we've already talked a little bit about uh james franciscus as brent uh, uh uh, you mentioned Burt Reynolds was considered or had considered the part of uh, Heston too. He was fine. He got us there. For what the film is, I do think he's fine. I mean, he's not, uh, he, he doesn't, for me, have the, the strength of Charlton Heston in the first film, but the film isn't the first film either. And so yeah. to that end, I think that in the end, he ends up being fine. I, I want to talk more specifically about David Watson. How do you feel he did as a stand-in for McDowell as Cornelius? It's it's funny because you look at Cornelius and you can just tell that the face is different. It, it doesn't have the same facial structure, even as in the chimp makeup. It still doesn't have the I same I thought that look. was weird, too. I noticed yeah. it and I didn't think I would. Yeah, you really do notice it. Um, I, I don't mind him. I think that he works in place of Roddy McDowell. Uh, I guess it's just nice to keep the, the character consistent. Roddy McDowell uh, was directing his first film and so couldn't uh, come on board this particular project, although he does come back for the next three. So that's nice to see him return. Um, and I guess to that end, they you know the part with Cornelius is... Uh, and Zero, really, it's it's much smaller in this film than it is going to be in the next one. Uh, so, true, yeah. 
so to that end, it's it's mostly just the conversation about beating Sira. <laughs> it's a strange angle for her to take instead of just like <laughs> slipping the plate of bloody cloths under the bed or something. <laughs> I, it was good. Uh, his his role in particular, the the voice uh, was just you know there is something. At least it proved to me that there is something special about McDowell and and what he sounds like. There is something that is uniquely him, and uh, and and I did find I I missed that. Even and it's funny because even in moments where you know they 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 created such great uh, ape mannerisms, and I really enjoy the way that um, uh, Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter would kind of walk as the chimps, where they kind of their arms dangle straight to their side and they just kind of shuffle forward. Um, it, it's a nice look. It works really well. And it's funny. I ended up finding it more noticeable here when David Watson was doing it, even though it's essentially the same thing. It just, for some reason, even those little things end up standing out to me. And it's just, it was strange to me. In the role of our new character, Ursus, we have uh, a, a favorite face, James Gregory. Interestingly, a famous face that is behind a mask here, but man... Uh, he's, he's been in a lot of stuff, uh, and, uh, we know him from the Manchurian Candidate, we know him from Murderer's Row, we know him from a lot of television over the course of his 181 credits. Uh, James Gregory, what'd you think? I think that the character is nice. I, again, I wish that he was written more strongly. I think that's, um my biggest issue with him. And I, I don't know if it's, it's, if he needed to be written more strongly or just the elements that got Ursus into wanting to wage this war needed to be a little stronger. Um, but I think Ursus is a really interesting character and I, I like him as this, this, uh, you know, this dark gorilla general, um, even though he might be a little, uh, uh one-sided and, and that's a, a fault of the script to kind of keep him that way. But I, I think that James Gregory actually brings it, uh, brings it out uh, pretty nicely as kind of this big commander. He has such a characteristic or a, a, such a, a notable voice, right? I mean, you can hear him, that, that sort of drawl that he has under the mask. Uh, you can kind of recognize him. Even if you don't know the name, if you can't associate the name, you do recognize that voice. It's been around a long, long time. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I did think he was good, even in the sauna. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Orson Welles um, was, uh, they thought he would be great. And, you know, they had actually... Uh, wanted Orson Welles in the first film, but um, uh, that didn't work out in that particular one. They um, offered him the role as Ursus in this film. And he, yeah, back to the comment about, about the masks, he said no actor should work behind a mask, which I think is funny because he always had to have fake noses <laughs> in his performances. <laughs> I guess that's not enough of a mask, but... Um, uh, I'm glad that James Gregory didn't feel the same because I do think that he he uh, does a nice job as uh, General Ursus. Uh, what's what are your thoughts on our new actors that join us for as the uh, mutants? I, in general, I I like them. I I don't think I have really any issues with them. Um, they're you know some odd names like uh, Albina and Caspe and Mendez and fat man and Negro <laughs> some really terrible options for some of them that they just couldn't come up with names. So they just use some terrible descriptors. Victor Buono, I think who, who's plays fat man. 
may be the only one that we have talked about before, if I am remembering correctly. I think um, he so, was in Whatever me. Happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. As the as the uh, uh man who hires Baby Jane to uh or she hires him to write music for her. Right. Uh and he has been in a, a ton of fantastic um fantastic films and and television shows over the years yes. he's, uh, you know uh, so he's he's another one of those faces you will absolutely recognize yeah i'm trying to remember uh, i'm trying to just look through credits and see how many of the other people are that recognizable to me jeff Corey is one of the ones that i definitely recognize he was in butch casting the sundance kid a uh, little big man he has just kind of with the glasses mm-hmm. and the nose just a, a face that is very familiar to me and he was in so many. I mean, Jeff Corey was 236 credits uh, yes. over the course of his career. But uh, Menda, Paul Richards... He's not one that I'm as familiar with. Right. And he was sort of the, the main... Mendez was sort of the main telepath. But uh, he's also one who's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like you look through his credits and he's just... He's all over the place. Uh, again, at the end, toward the end of his career, just a lot of television... Natalie Trundy, who plays Albina, um, she actually is the one who might um, make the most sense to you know have a longer conversation about because we're going to see her quite a bit. Uh, she is in the next three Apes films, and uh, so it's going to be her credit list isn't as uh, lengthy as some of the other people, but I do think it's interesting that she does come back in um escape conquest and battle as a different character obviously she's the same character in the last two films but she's a different character in the next film but yes she never returns as this particular character because bomb because bomb exactly (laughs) okay milton krasner is behind the camera new to the franchise uh and i believe we've talked about milton krasner before Uh, and all about eve for sure He's uh, kind of an industry industry standard yeah. uh, DP. I think that he's one of those guys who just kind of had been around and was a studio DP, just working on lots of stuff. This is toward the end of his career. Um, I don't think he worked a ton into the 70s. I mean, geez, he had started uh, way back in the day. He was in his 70s by this point, or yeah, he was man. in his late 60s by this point. And this was, I, this was his, it looks like his last feature film. Uh, yeah. Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and went on to Columbo and Macmillan and Wife for a number uh, of episodes there. But uh, um, yeah, it, it, this gives us a chance a chance to talk about zooms. Yes. Oh my goodness! Between him and Ted Post, boy, do they love their uh, their zooms. And I know it was something that really took off in the seventies, but oh, it is just too much in this film. <laughs> it's dizzy. <laughs> so it's many vertigo. Zooms. Yeah. So many of the zooms are from a high angle too, which makes it uh, just and and impossible tricks of vision is what we have here (laughs) there's no way that like they're using these zooms in a number of areas to to simulate the effect of of awareness right generally of brent as he's discovering the this is the notable ones right the brent discovering that oh my god it's a city of apes and he'll look and he'll zoom and the zoom is like from 
50 to 300, you know, and then <laughs> he'll cut back to a close up on Brent's face and then it'll go from 75 to 400. And it just keeps zooming <laughs> into these ape faces and it's dizzying and it's too much. I agree with you. It's frustrating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do appreciate that they tried some visual tricks. I, it's it's interesting because watching this film, I wouldn't say it's got a strong uh, style of its own. I don't think that he exhibits kind of a DP style. Um, I don't know enough of, of Ted Post's career to say it's his style, but it really feels um, uh, just kind of low budget, I guess, is the thing I would say. But I do appreciate that they throw things in, even if it feels out of place, like the the Brent's POV shot as Charlton Heston kicks him in the face. Yeah, right. It was a very strange shot, but at the at the end of the day, I found it effective in the moment. And there are some solid motion shots, too, particularly the fight on the carriage, right, on the on the yeah. cage with right. the horses. There were some really interesting camera placements and some some tricky ones, not quite so tricky as some of the other great, you know, Western um, carriage fights we've seen. But um, it, it was it was solid. It was solid use of, of locked cameras and wide shots uh, integrating into in cage, uh, you know, camera placement where we see them fighting above and around you. I think it was very cool. Um, yeah. and, and some great stunt work, too. We should say i mean there's some there's some some good fight falls and and uh it was it was good i particularly love the one coming off of that cage fight when when the ape the gorilla stands up on top and then gets hit by the tree branch <laughs> I know. it's like we have this great fight and then go completely slapstick <laughs> zoink scoob <laughs> Oh, so funny. So good. Uh, we have production design uh, back from the original William Craver and Jack Martin Smith, uh, hair and makeup, John Chambers, uh, giving us the look of uh, the apes in particular and Morton Hack all back from the first movie. Um, and they are working within the constraints of their budgets. Well, and, and you know, the nice thing about coming to a sequel so quickly is the ape city was still there. It was still on the Fox Ranch. Um, and so they were able to just really have that production value already that they had created the first time. And to that end, I think it was a strength. As far as the, the rest of the production design, it was low budget. So they had to work with what they had. You know, they were working with sets from other films like the Hello Dolly, uh, ch the front of the chapel. They had to use that and kind of create this underground look um, to to make this big church. Um underground and where where the the missile was kept and all that and so they they used what they had and ended up creating something that i think worked for the most part i i think probably most of the money uh seemed to be spent on um the makeup again from john chambers not on the apes but on the mutants and mm -hmm. trying to find that look that ted post really was that was an area he was very um uh specific and 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 they tried a number of different looks for that before he kind of he had seen in some medical book what a face looked like when the skin uh, uh had been peeled off and he said something like that where it's just all veiny and stuff and i really like the look i think it's super creepy looking I, I do too. I think, in in fact, of the makeup in this movie, that's the, you know, of all the makeup going on. As much as we celebrated the the apes in the last movie, man, these the the mutant faces are terrific. Yeah, um, they are. Leonard Rosenman, Andy, 
Oh, we love Leonard, don't we, so much? He turns up in the weirdest places. He does. Well, and this is the second series that we've done where, I, I mean, granted, Star Trek, he's not following directly on Jerry Goldsmith's heels because there's also James Horner yeah. uh, in there. But before Leonard Rosamond gets in and makes one of the worst Star Trek scores imaginable. But here he is again, following on Jerry Goldsmith's heels, um, writing music that I will say, I think the music in this film works um, really well. I like what he does here. And, and to that end, I give him a thumbs up. Well, as a utility player, uh, I, I totally agree because he came in and he really, um, uh, he did a great job leveraging the original film's score. It, it feels of a piece. It feels like it's in the same universe. He didn't do too much to, um, you know, to, to create something in a wholly different sort of tone scheme and and so i really i like it i think it totally fits it feels like he was working hard to to travel in the shoes of of jerry um and so it works but i again this is not what i'm going to listen to well he does a great job creating the um the kind of the the choral music of the mutants and that's some creepy stuff you yeah, know I, yeah. I again jerry goldsmith has done some great stuff like that with the omen um and i think that uh, to a certain extent leonard roseman feels like he's uh working that angle create using that that paul dane uh poetry type of stuff to make these really discordant mm-hmm. songs that these people are singing to their to their bomb let's talk about ted post then uh, you know, this guy directed Magnum Force and Hang 'em High and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> he's a, he's had a, a a long career, you know, directing since the 50s. A lot of TV uh, when he got started. I think, uh, you know, his first feature was probably uh, early 60s. And um, then I, I, I think he's mostly a TV director. I don't think there's much in the way of features other than... Um, that and the films you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, plus maybe a few after uh, this, but not much. He really focused on on TV, and to that end, I I think when you're doing a low budget uh, film, uh, at least back in the day, they would look to TV directors as the source for uh, for that, yeah, because they knew how to work fast and cheap. I don't know if you'd say that so much nowadays. Yeah. I think I think there's been such a huge shift. But I think even into the 80s and, and 90s, I think you could still say that. How to do an award season, Andy? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Pete. You know, I don't know if we've had a film before that has come up with a straight zero as far <laughs> as awards, um, even nominations. Um, I, I feel like... And maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm trying. I was trying to reach back in my memory since we started talking about awards. Have there been any that we've talked about that haven't even had a nomination? And I don't think I so. I don't think we have. Even even films that were nominated for like Razzies and yeah. and things like that. This film, uh, yeah, came up with a straight up zero. So I think that's uh, an interesting point <laughs> in and of itself. That's fascinating. I, I feel like we need an award. How <laughs> to do with the box office? 
Uh, well, you know, despite the rush to get the film made uh, to satisfy all those moviegoers hungry for more, um, as we said, the studio was going through this huge financial crisis. Um, Ted Post originally was given around $6 million to make the, the film, but it ended up getting cut down to $3 million because of all of this. That is a final budget of about $18.6 million in today's dollars, which is a drop of more than half from the original film's budget, um, which was around $40 million in today's dollars. So it's a big change from the first film to this film. The movie opened May 26, 1970, opposite films that everybody is still talking about today. The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart, which was Don Johnson's debut, and the uh, film version of the TV show Puffin Stuff. Studio's budget problems didn't stop audiences from flocking to the film and generally loving it. Uh, the film ended up grossing just under $19 million, or $117.8 million in today's dollars. That actually makes the film more profitable than the first one and leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over a million dollars. More profitable than the first one. That's there it is. just bananas. Profitable in the sense that, you know, profit per cost ratio. Yeah. It, uh, it cost so much less and it made a hefty chunk of change. Oh, so. I know. I yeah. get it. Yeah, I yeah. also want to know how we're going to work puff and stuff into a series. <laughs> that feels important. Uh, children's shows turned into movies. There it is. <laughs> Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this show. Or you can swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart, and you'll be taken straight to this movie because it's actually in the flickchart database. And you can add it to your list and let's see how it stands up to ours. All right. This is going to be a tricky one for me because I really enjoy it, but I acknowledge that it's a very problematic film. It's okay <laughs> so. to feel strong emotions. You can sit in them and then make the right choice. Yes, yeah. like you didn't with 2001. <laughs> All right, here we go. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Fat City. Okay. I'm going to put Beneath the Planet of the Apes on first, but I'm going to acknowledge that Fat City is the better movie. Okay. So I'm saying Fat City. I'm going to go with Fat City. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Atlantic City. Now here, I'm actually going to say Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'll give you that. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Labyrinth. Little David Bowie for me. I think I'm beneath the planet of the apes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a rock, paper, scissors I wasn't expecting. So Me let's too. do it. Here we go. One, One two, two, three, paper. scissors. Okay. I don't feel terrible it. about that. I wouldn't have felt terrible either way. Okay. Beneath the planet of the apes or the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. The girl who kicked the hornet's nest. In the realm of sequels, um, I'm going to say beneath the planet of the apes. Okay. Here we go. Okay. One, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. Mm, Andy, you're really bringing your A game today. Uh, well, after 2001, I, I've been going to RPS school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Absolutely Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. Okay. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Die Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard with a Vengeance. In the world of sequels, I will say Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Die Hard 2, I will say Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2. <laughs> Beneath the Planet of the Apes or your favorite film, Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm totally Detroit. I know you are. I'm totally Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I can't believe that. I can't believe it. Yeah. Andy. I know. I know you can't. I just really, really had issues with that film. All right, here we go. Uh -huh. One, One, two, two 
three, scissors. Woo, Andy, is, is this a shutout RPS game? It, it is, because that's the end. Beneath the Planet of the Apes ended up at 249 on our flick chart out of 365. Well, congratulations so. to you, sir, because wow. that was amazing. Why could I do that I two don't weeks know. ago? Boy, you really, you <laughs> should have brought that. I don't know where that was. Uh, I don't either. I'm just embarrassed. For that myself. was a Hall of Fame performance right there. <laughs> what movie are we reviewing? I don't even care. <laughs> well, this film, as as many problems as I have with it, it is still a three star and a like for me over on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, for me, it's a two star. Uh, I just, I, I, you know, I, I feel like it was, uh, it, it was just much more of an empty shell compared to the last movie, even though you've turned me around, you've actually improved my view of it, uh, since the, my viewing of it last night, it is, it, it's too much schlock, uh, but it, but it does have, it does have something to say. So is that two stars and a like then? Yeah. All right. I'm not going to be watching this one. I, I can give it another 30 years. I am very much looking forward to walking through the rest of these films with you then, because uh, there's definitely schlock uh, through them. Yeah. And definitely low budget production values. I'm, so I'm imagining uh, more hearts than stars. That's what I'm imagining in the last I, in the I, last round. Uh, that might be a good way to walk into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what's your, is your memory the same? Like, do you have the same? When you think about these, having, and I'm assuming you haven't watched these other three yet. Not recently. I mean, right. I, I've watched them all. I've watched, I went through the whole thing probably before dawn of okay. the Planet of the Apes. All right, I so think. it's been actually pretty recent, right? In, yeah, in I've watched, I've watched them all fairly recently. Okay. So do you have and the I same? And I enjoy sort of, all of them. You do. Okay. All right. I do. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that helps, that helps me understand what we're getting into. I yes, can't wait. Yes. I can't either. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel, and you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> I think Amazon may have given, have giveneth this week. <laughs> they didn't really give it. It's, I think they may be back on their game. You want to start? Uh, sure. I, I'm going to do a one star by William G. Carver, who says, when I watch this as a kid in the 70s, I have no idea what literal liberal tripe this was. Don't waste your time unless you want to see today's liberals as the group think monkeys that they are. <laughs> That's good. And believe it or not, two people have liked his review. That was an, and, that uh, was a really, I mean, your attention to detail in the reading <laughs> is laudable.
Even the in-less. Yeah. That was really, I noticed that. I want you to know if nobody else did, I did. You're an artiste. Oh. I have a one star from Richard who says, just in case someone gets suckered into watching this like I did, I will not give away details. Just in case someone gets suckered into watching this like I did. The first half was okay. Looked like there was possibly a story that could be forming. Then around halfway through this movie, it's like the writers had something better to do and threw anything they could together to finish the movie. The ending is unfreaking believable. I was actually mad that I wasted that amount of time that I will never get back. Amazon should have a zero star option because I would definitely use it for this movie. The first movie was an awesome classic, something I've always loved since I was a kid. The second, dud. I doubt I will watch any of the others. I really wish I could leave a great review. Alas, Richard could not. Alas, he couldn't. Mm. Unless you consider this a great review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is enjoyable reading. It's unfreaking believable, Andy. He was mad. I know that feeling, and that's why I like this review. I know what it's like to be mad at a movie, Andy. To be mad Are at you? a soggy, sauna-sodden ape in a plastic suit. <laughs> I know what that feels like. You're mad as hell, and uh, you're not going to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.